Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This podcast is sponsored by Wine Access. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal. Check out my latest picks on the page. Get 10% off your first order and join the Wine for Normal People Wine Access Wine Club. Listen in the middle of the show for more details. After doing the Cote de Bone podcasts, I don't know whether this is going to be a two or three for the Cote de Nuit. We're going to have to see how it goes. Although it's the same size as the Cote de Bone, it's in the northern portion of Cote d'Or, the Golden Slope, or the actually or is for Orient because it faces east. Even though it took two podcasts to go through the Cote de Bone, Cote de Nuit has 24 Grand Cru vineyards and it is packed to the gills with famous wines. It's definitely not going to take one show, but will it take two or three? I don't know yet. We're going to have to see how it rolls. Isn't this exciting for everybody? It is. It's a little scary. How am I going to absorb all this? Well, that's why we're going to break it up, because it is a lot of information. But it's one of the great wine regions of the world. The problem with Burgundy, besides the fact that it's very unaffordable, but I have put down the prices of everything in case people were wondering how much stuff costs, because I think that's a concern. Burgundy is obviously overpriced. There was just an article in Wine Searcher about- Obviously overpriced. Anybody that ever looked at a Burgundy felt a heart attack slightly come on, unless it was Macon or Chablis or some of the outlying areas. It starts at 20 US dollars, which is like 17 pounds. Have prices gone up or has yes, the, prices has have the gone quality up. gone down? What? The quality gone down? Yeah. Well, you're saying that it's oh, it's now overpriced. That's well, no, That would come from two reasons, right? No, no, no. I mean, it's just overpriced, meaning who can afford that? I mean, our village level Burgundy is starts at $35 oh, US. Geez. Okay. And that's not even from a good producer. So anyway, it is expensive, but we're going to go over... Some things that are specific to the Cote de Nuit, some are going to be a repeat of the Cote de Bone. I use the philosophy when it comes to Burgundy that you can never hear it too many times because, you know, from my own experience, the number of times that I go over Burgundy, I still always feel like, oh, I forgot that thing or this thing. So some of this will be a bit of a rehashing of the Cote de Bone, but I have a feeling knowing you guys the listeners, I don't think that you're going to mind that much. So we will go over a lot of this stuff again. We, of course, are going to give a shout out to our patrons on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash wine for normal people is how you can support and join the community. We have been having some really fantastic conversations on there lately and hangouts scheduled. So hopefully you will join and we need to thank the people who make this podcast possible. And those are the patrons along with Wine Access. So Alyssa A, KCC, Hannah S, Amy E, Aaron, Emmy, Christine B, Lindsay H, Evelyn G, Mike P, Kathy G, Alex D, and Robert M. Thank you so much to everybody who has joined. We really, really appreciate it. You get what you put into the community. And thanks, everybody, for being patrons. So let's talk about the Cote de Nuit. We are at 47 degrees north latitude, which is really far north for reds. We see reds in Loire. We see some also in Alsace, and those are a bit farther. Well, Loire is about the same. Alsace is a bit farther north. This is in the northern portion of the main strip of Burgundy. And what we are talking about specifically when we talk about the Cote de Nuit is between Dijon, which is a fairly decent-sized city, and Corgolon, which is in the south, but it is named for the town or the hamlet of Nuit-Saint-Georges. Nuit-Saint-Georges, Nuit Côte de Nuit. So we have the Côte de Nuit, and then we have outlying areas, which are the Haut-Côte de Nuit, which we talked about, the Haut-Côte de Bonne. The Haut-Côte de Nuit is a bit smaller And so as we're considering all of it, it's about 20 kilometers or 12 miles from north to south. And in parts, it's only about 200 meters or 656 feet wide. It's a sort of a long, narrow band, right? It's a narrow strip of limestone with some other stuff. 
the thing that you can't see from the map, and again, I think I talked about this in the Code to Bone podcast, you really need the map, which I will put in the show notes. You have east and southeast facing slopes because where the vineyards lie, they are on a slope. And that slope is this straight thing. So there's nothing on the western side that's all facing east, Hmm. right? So this stuff is all facing out to the east and somewhat southeast. You do have some northeast facing slopes in some parts. It is much steeper than the Cote de Bone. The Cote de Bone is still steep, especially when you compare it to places like Macon, Beaujolais, and also the Cote Chalonais. But the Cote de Nuit is sharper. There's more altitude and it's a little steeper. Okay, so tying this back to our older daughter's science project the other day, is there terraced farming here? No, 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 no. It's not that steep. Not that steep at all. This is not the Northern Rhone. This is not Mosul. You can do viticulture. And there are places where it's flat. It's gently sloped, but we're not talking about extreme. But it's still in altitude and it's still on slope. So I just want to be clear about that. Due to the escarpment, Everything is going to pick up that morning sun rather than the hotter afternoon sun. Mm, this used sense. to be a problem because you couldn't always get ripeness, especially on the red grapes. Right. Now this is a benefit because as climate has gotten hotter, now it's a little bit better to not have that hot western sun. I'm not saying the Cote de Nuit is encouraging climate change or anything, right? Well, they but have certainly, they certainly benefited, benefited from it. Right? Yes, they have certainly benefited from it. Loire has benefited from it. Champagne to some extent, although it's turning the other way, Alsace as well. But the Cote de Nuit, even though it is in the north, and this was something when I first studied wine, I was super confused about because how could it be that they would grow red grapes in the northern portion where it could be a little bit cooler? Mm-hmm. But Pinot is what grows here. This is the most famous place for Pinot Noir in the world. There is a little bit of white. There's even some rosé here. But this is the most famed place for Pinot Noir in the world. Now, when we talk about the prices, especially of these wines, I want to be clear about why that is. Beyond the difficult growing conditions, the history, the uniqueness of place, it is tiny. Most people are making less than a thousand cases of wine a year versus Bordeaux, which is more like 20,000 cases a year. So when you consider how tiny it is, you can see that there's a supply problem. There's just not enough wine for people. So, of course, it is going to always be more expensive. The question is, has the train left the station? Are we ever going to get prices back that could be palatable? And I'm not sure. I mean, if they can command that much, doesn't that incentivize more planting, though, in in maybe areas that aren't as No, there's nowhere to plant. There isn't any. Remember, we're talking about planting on a slope. Once that's planted up, there's nothing. And they've also planted on the flats underneath the slope. There are places, when we talk about the terroir, you'll see that there's nowhere else to plant. You can't go over like one more parcel. Can't really. I mean, they've already... Let's stretch the boundaries a little bit. They've already done that to the extent possible. Let's talk about the history. I do think it's important. It's going to be a repeat, but I'm going to try to make it a little more specific to the Cotinui rather than all of Burgundy. The Romans came in the third century. But the thing about the Cote de Nuit and the Cote de Bone, frankly, is that this was really a unique planting for the Romans because the Romans always wanted to plant near rivers. They knew that from a commerce standpoint, they weren't dummies. They wanted to be able to ship the wine right. back Who and forth. Who wants to haul it across the land just to ship it? Yes. Right. They wanted to do that. And they also figured out fairly quickly that the best viticulture was on slopes. And we don't know mm-hmm. why. Actually, we talked about that in the podcast with Aurelien Chirat when we were talking about Northern Rhone, which mm-hmm. is so steep. And we just don't know why they decided to go that steep and do such hard labor. But anyway, they planted the vines on this narrow strip of land that was near their settlement called Pagus Arabriginus. This is the name of the Arabriginus, settlement? Arabriginus, yes. Okay. It eventually was the Cote de Nuit and Cote de Bone. The name Burgundy actually came because the Romans found themselves under attack by Germanic tribes, hmm. and they sought the help of a Baltic tribe, the Burgundians. Oh, really? Yes, and that's how we got the name. Oh, huh. In 312 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine, who was the emperor from 306 to 337, mm-hmm. visited Burgundy. And wine here was already the envy of the empire. Even then, vines were only allowed to be planted on a narrow patch between the marshy plains and the rocky hilltops. The wine was so coveted, it was taken down from the coat, the slopes, mm-hmm. in these wooden barrels 
And it was very difficult to get it down because the roads were horrible and barrels broke all the time. But that was, as the Mandalorian says, this is the way. You want good wine? This is the way. By the Middle Ages, then we see the monks here. Monks were very important. The Benedictines, the Cistercians. Between the 6th and 15th centuries, the monks developed methods for vine cultivation, and they handed down this idea, and the terroir concept began here. That's Mm -hmm. what they discovered, these subtle differences in land. As I always say, they didn't have much else to do except make beer, wine, and cheese. So, of course, they're going to document the stuff. Not a bad lot in life. No, I mean, they, I'm sure they were, they were happy people. The Dukes of Burgundy, through political influence and the patronage of the church, spread the word about Burgundy. It got into the hands of the royalty in Europe. By the 1300s, Chambreton and Nui already had huge reputations bigger than Burgundy. There were already specific places being called out. We'll talk about Chambreton and we'll talk about Nui later on. In the 16th and 17th centuries, you actually had more whites, Chardonnay, and a grape called Frontmanteau. And by the 18th century in the 1700s, Louis XIV's personal physician recommended that he drink only wines from Nuit Saint-Georges for their health properties. Wow. So this was a huge thing because the wine merchants in the Côte de Nuit said, this is a great marketing coup. There was already huge rivalry between Burgundy, Champagne, and Bordeaux. And this was a huge leg up for them. So Burgundy really took advantage of it. And then because the wines were coveted for these health purposes, because the king gave his endorsement of them, they started a period of what they called tête de wines. So these are single vineyards with heavier body, longer maceration, new winemaking techniques, tannic wines that needed some time. After the 1855 classification of Bordeaux, I think a lot of people don't recognize this, and I'm not sure that I knew this. The Committee of Agriculture of mm-hmm. Bone asked this guy, Dr. Jules Laval, to come up with a similar classification of vineyards to Cote de Nuit and Cote de Bone for the 1862 International Exhibition in London. Hmm. They wanted status for their wines. This was actually the official foundation for the Grand Cru and Premier Cru of the AOC system in the 1930s, which we will talk about in a second. I wonder if that doctor's still accepting new uh, patients. Yeah, it sounds like he's it got sounds... some good. Although there was just that like study done that yeah, said, that's yeah, right. the Finally, more good news. Yeah, good, good news on wine, right? The more varietals that you have, the more immunity. It's good for your gut health. It's good for mental health. Right. So, I mean, again, I will go back to my thing with David Morrison. We're never going to know whether wine is good or bad for you, and it is an individual thing. However, the vilification of it is kind of annoying. Anyway, well said. Terroir. We are going to get into the details of some of the terroir and really not for purposes of memorization, just so that we can get a handle on why some of these places are different from other places. The climate in general is a continental climate with cold winters and warm summers. You have, again, remember, no mail about my pronunciation. Uh, I know I'm not saying it right. The Saon River, S-A-O-N-E River, And the foothills of the Massif Central in the West are going to moderate temperatures, so it's not quite as cold as it would be. There is this confluence of the Baltic Sea in the North, the Atlantic in the West, and the Mediterranean in the South. And although the Côte de Nuit is far from these places, they all play a part. And that's going to make some of the weather a little changeable. So, for instance, there's a cool breeze that comes in from the North called La Bisse. In the summertime... This is going to temper some of the heat, and it's going to actually sometimes help delay some of the storms away from this area. But there's the southern winds that come up from the Mediterranean. They bring heat, and they can also, with heat, come things like thunderstorms and hail. Hail is incredibly local. Remember the podcast I did with Derek Van Dam from CNN? Still really one of the best things I've ever done on weather. So if you haven't listened to that, he's such a great guy, but he really helped explain, especially hail, how local the phenomenon actually is. But because of these three disparate influences all coming together in Burgundy, vintage variation is probably the most 
dramatic in France. So is it capricious or does it create microclimates? It's going to be both. There's okay. going to be microclimates, especially because when you have slopes and undulating right. things, you're going to have different things at the bottom of the slope, okay. the middle of the slope. So that's going to make a difference. And again, especially with stuff like hail mm-hmm. or rain, whether or not the rain pools at the bottom mm. of the slope. I mean, everything has good drainage here. We're, well, I was say, we're, if it's but, all limestone, right? Right. Yeah. But some of it has clay in it. So depending on where you are, the drainage is better okay. based on where you are on the slope. But it's a matter of weather here. It's not even climate as much as it is weather. So this is where climate change has an insidious effect because climate change is long-term effects of weather patterns over the course of time. Right. So we're not necessarily talking about climate change, but we are talking about incredibly changeable weather. Burgundy's always had a problem with this. And now they see sometimes things getting too hot, hmm. which is very strange for them. And then the warmer air coming up actually create a bigger problem for them because of the storms. And that can lead to big problems, especially because... Physical damage. Well, that and think about rain at the end of the growing season. You have rain, it can make a crop enormous. All of a sudden you get huge crops, which you don't want. You've got to control vigor, which they didn't have to worry about quite as much before. So now you How might do need they new, control vigor? new rootstock is one of the ways. Also just pruning. Just pruning. Yeah, pruning and pruning, relentless pruning. And then also at the end of the season, if you have a lot of rain, you've got rot issues, oh, yeah. especially with Pinot. It's a very tightly clustered grape mm-hmm. and you so can mold. dilute the flavor. Oh, right. Right? Too right. much water and now you're diluting the flavor. Mm-hmm. So these are problems for Burgundy. In the Cote d'Inouye, it's actually on a fault line, and Cote de Bonne actually, is on a fault line between the plains of the Sion River and the Morvan Hills that are in the west. The land is broken up by dry valleys that are called Combe, and then there are some tributaries. There's little rivers that go into the Sion River, some near Nuit-Saint-Georges, some a little bit farther north. The places where the Combe are, the dry valleys and the streams, so if you have a stream, you're going to have alluvial soils. If you have a valley, then you have some different exposures. You might have more southern exposure. You might have some northern exposure because Mm -hmm. you've got a little bit of a turn rather than just this big hill that's facing east. The elevations are high. The top vineyards begin at around 250 meters, which is 800 feet. Oh, wow. That is high. If we consider that most people think of high-altitude viticulture at around 1,200 feet, we're getting there. Yeah, you're approaching it. Yes. Burgundy, not flat. Soils. Hugely important. I just want to emphasize again, terroir is not soil. It's all of the things that I'm mentioning. It's elevation, slope, climate. It is the fault. When you talk about terroir, and it's really important that we understand this, Mm -hmm. that it is all of those things together. I just want to make sure that we don't say like terroir is soil. No, it's a hugely important part of it, but it's not just that. The soils here are really unique. Jurassic soils. From 195 to 135 million years ago, that was the Jurassic period. There was a sea here. Dinosaurs are the And there were dinosaurs. Right. And what you were drinking is dinosaur bones. Yeah, it's dinosaur blood and bones. Ah. And some scales. Yeah, yeah. Also, if you see the sediment, it's a big lie. That's just scales, the dinosaur scales. That does make a lot of sense. Some tooth fragments. Yeah, Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, do you get that now? I do. Yeah. That's what... You know how sometimes it tastes like a little meaty? Yes. There you go. That's it. Little iron-like. Right, right. It's the dinosaur blood. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, good. Yeah, so we got that solved. Nice. You know, this is going to get some attention. I I mean, I don't know. Right? It's a great, it's obviously, I don't know why we have to be the ones to break this news. It's this is really, going to be big news. Yeah. It, it really is. The other thing is they might have been swimming dinosaurs because it was covered by an inland sea, this area. There were plenty of those, though. Yeah, there yep. were. Yeah. Yep. And Nessie, you know, and, oh, and right, uh, still. Yeah, up, up in Scotland. Yep. Yeah. So the rock is mainly Jurassic limestone. There's something called oolitic limestone, which you may remember from the Dakota Bone podcast, that's marine debris of lime carbonate from seawater. And it's incredibly porous and well-drained. Right. Limestone is the foundation, but the Cote de has something else. There's a lot of limestone. That escarpment is going to pop up in Cote de Bone, and that's where we're getting great Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. The limestone is the foundation, but marlstone is the key to good Pinot. Okay, marlstone. So mar, sea, obviously, right? No, clay together with some limestone. Okay. It's a little heavier, which is why you're going to be able to have red wines here. There's also 
in the Cote de Nuit some sand and gravel from old mountain chains that have weathered and worn mm-hmm. down. But Cote de Nuit has a lot of marl, and marl is really best for Pinot. Limestone is best for Chardonnay. Why did the Romans decide that they did not want to farm near the Seine River? Because the streams and the tributaries and all of that area, it's just too fertile for grapes or it's too poorly drained. Oh, interesting. They figured that out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And although it would have been a lot more convenient to have something right on the river, mm-hmm. they couldn't grow quality Not grapes struggle there. struggle enough. Right. So instead, the viticulture is up at the hills. It's less fertile. There's porous limestone. There's less really fertile, dense clay mm-hmm. and less alluvial soil, which, again, can create wines with less what we call concentration or flavor, right. less dinosaur blood. <laughs> These are all generalizations, though. You know, I say all this and then hills or a single row can have a completely different soil composition. And it's why Kino in one place, even if it's super close, tastes completely different from another place because of all of these micro differences. It really is very difficult to understand. But when you taste the stuff side by side by side, and I haven't had that many opportunities to do it because I got into wine after Burgundy got expensive, but I do hear stories about people in days past being able to try Romani Conti and all of these amazing, we're not going to cover that in this podcast because it's farther south than where we're going to go with this. When did it get start to get really expensive? Probably in the 1980s, Mm, uh, 1990s. -hmm. That's when wine really took off around the world. And yeah, it was always expensive, but this is untouchable. Got it. The classification system, we have discussed this in the other podcast, but I'm going to go through it again. It's really based on soil and place. For instance, top of the slope or the bottom of the slope can make good wine, but you're not going to make great wine. That is where you have the regional appellations and then the village appellations or the communal wines. The top and the bottom. The top and the bottom. Got it. And some tops actually are going to be good enough, but many tops you're going to have village wine. Okay. The regional appellations for Nuit, it's just the Bourgogne au Côte de Nuit. So we talked about the Bourgogne Oh, Cote de Bonne. And I will tell you, this is the best value in the Cote de Nuit that you can get. Really? These are higher slopes. They're above the escarpment of the Cote de Nuit. They're not really in the main part. They're stretched out. Those are really good. Village. You have a bunch of village wines, but there are some that are less well-known. The Cote de Nuit village, usually red. There's actually some white, but those are five or six different smaller villages that can use Cote de village. Some are in the north, some are in the south. We'll talk about those later. And then there are the main village appellations. This is where the Grand Cru are. So you have Gervry Chambertin, you have Maurice Saint-Denis, Chambol, Mucigny, Rougeau, Von Romani, Flagy Echezo, and Nuit Saint-Georges. Those are the ones that have the Grand Cru in them or a lot of Premier Cru. What are Grand Cru and Premier Cru? The best sites generally mid-slope, mm-hmm. where there's great drainage. Drainage is really the key to great soil. Elevations between 250 and 300 meters or 800 to 1,000 feet. Above that, you're going to find village wines. Premier Cru and Grand Cru are very special sites. And the Grand Cru, 24 of them lay in the Cote mm-hmm. There's a lot. It's interesting. That when you look at the Appalachians, they form almost a striated pattern because they're following the slope all the way down the chain. If you look at the map, you can see almost the effect you, of the terroir. Right, you could you could see what, what the terrain's doing just by looking at the Appalachians. Well, I think what's really interesting is that when you see where the Grand Cru are, you also see there are clusters, mm, mm-hmm, right? So you right. see that there are clusters yep. that happen to form in certain places that really the monks figured out made the best wines. And That's still the case today. We don't see any change in that. Now, the other thing about the regulations here is that this is unique because they use incredibly high-density plantings. It is 10,000 vines per hectare or 4,000 vines per acre. When you look at New World places, it's usually more like 2,000 vines per acre versus 4,000. Wow. It's almost double double the density. Also, they use geo training unless they need to control the vigor. It's really just the traditional way to train the vines. Is that the bushing? 
No, no, that's Gobelet and Gobelet. No, I, 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 though, you know, maybe if it gets too hot, eventually they usually do that when it's a little hotter because the canopy can shade itself okay. and things like that. But no, those are, that's better for old vine and for warmer areas. They hand harvest, especially for the Premier and Grand Cru vineyards, and especially for Pinot. You have to be very, very careful with that. There are some places they use mechanical harvesting, but the yields for Pinot are tiny. 40 hectoliters per acre for Pinot, 2.3 tons per acre. For a Premier Cru and Village, 35 hectoliters per hectare for Grand Cru. That's like two tons per acre. So, so wow. tiny. You can get an exception for bumper crops, but those are the regulations. There's also a lot of winemaking choices when you're dealing with Pinot. So I would say that the winemaking, especially in Burgundy, is part of the terroir, the hand of man. Mm-hmm. Are you going to destem de- the grapes or not destem the grapes prior to crushing and fermentation? If you have stems, they can add tannin, but they can actually also add a natural filter. They help keep the cap down, cap management. It allows you to do a little bit less intervention with, with the wine, but it can vary by vintage. It can vary by vineyard. The length of the maceration, how long you want to keep the skins and seeds in with the and stems, if right. you decide to do stem inclusion, how long you want to keep it in that grape soup, whether or not it needs to be with the skins for the whole fermentation or whether you want to take them out because you want less tannin. The temperature is going to affect the color, the tannins, the phenols. Oak regimen, huge. Most really great domains use at least a bit of new oak. How much new oak? How much used oak? How much time? 18 months is usually the minimum for better wines. Burgundy, also the barrels are bigger than Bordeaux, three liters bigger, which is substantial because they want less oak influence. Not to mention the sourcing issues. When you've got differences between individual rows of grapes, trying to make your blends has got to be really difficult. Well, it's really interesting that you say that because I was just going to say, these are decisions also that you have to make. Are you going to go it alone? Are you going to use a negotiant? Mm-hmm. Are you going to pool resources with your neighbor? Mm-hmm. So a producer might only have, to your point, two to three rows of vines. So what do you do? You can make your own wine and sell it, right. which is not going to be very much. Or you can blend it with somebody who has similar holdings. Right. You can sell your grapes. Or you can use a negotiant who's going to buy similar lots from the same vineyard, generally pull, speaking. Pull them together. Right. And mm-hmm. then they'll either buy the grapes or they'll buy finished wine from several people and they'll make it and blend it. Hmm. The negociant is our best bet for buying wine that's semi-affordable because they've pooled together the resources and they've got more resources and they can do it more cost efficiently. Right. Smaller domains are going to cost a lot of money. You've got this complex and varied ownership. The thing I didn't talk about during the history is what I will talk about now. I was waiting for this moment, which is that the thing that has messed Burgundy up in terms of fractured ownership is the Napoleonic Code, which said that in an effort to be egalitarian, if you and I Mm -hmm. have a parcel of land and we have two kids, when we die, that parcel of land gets divided equally among them. Now, of and course, so I will on, make my snarky and so on, right. And so on. I will make my snarky comment that, of course, if it was women, there's all these horrible stories about how the husbands usurped it and the woman. Yeah, died. you guys there don't couple, get any of that, do you? Couple of women held firm, and you hear their stories, but a lot of times it was actually you can read some really terrible accounts of what happened to women to their land. They basically lost control of their land to their brothers or to their husbands or whomever. But in any case. The land kept getting parsed and parsed and parsed until it finally stopped. So, yes, it got taken away from the church. Yes, it was broken up. Mm -hmm. Bordeaux was incorporated. The chateau were incorporated. These are people inheritance laws, not corporate inheritance laws. Mm -hmm. So Bordeaux managed to skirt this issue. And, you know, a place like Rhone, there just nobody had a lot of land. There wasn't ownership. Although you still do see some of that. You see, actually, sometimes family names in Burgundy over and over again. You might see multiple people with the last name Esmonin, or you might see several Druines or whatever it is. You will see them over and over again because it's the same family mm-hmm. that subdivided and subdivided and had Through this one had a little bit. Yeah. yeah.
let's take a step away from the podcast to thank Wine Access. Without them, this podcast would not be free and it would not be available in the way that it is. So let's all thank Wine Access, which is my go-to source for the best selection of interesting wines. You'll go to wineaccess.com slash normal, get 10% off your first order. I had a wine from Cornaw, Domaine Durand, the other week. It was one of the best Syrahs I have ever had. And I constantly am saying that about the wine selection at Wine Access. Every wine in your shipment is presented so beautifully. My friends in the wine industry and I always talk about this, like the quality of the materials is so great. All the things that you want to know about the wines, they anticipate and give to you. You can sign up for their daily emails. It's not just about their great deals, but you can learn about wine. I know that some people have not really gotten into the groove of ordering wines online. And if you haven't, I can tell you it is such a great way to get wines. If you were going to start somewhere, the best way to start is with Wine Access. Wine Access's customer service is awesome. They have a never settle guarantee. If you don't like wine, they'll credit the bottle. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal, get 10% off your first order. Wine access, wineaccess.com slash normal. So you can see the page of my picks, the things that I'm drinking right now, including that fantastic Domaine Durand, Cornat, and all of the other wines that I love so much. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal, join my wine club or join one of their wine clubs, whatever works best for you. Get 10% off your first order. Do it today. Also just want to remind you, if you go to winefornormalpeople.com slash classes, you'll see some spots have become available for Cabernet around the world for wines of the Rhone. Definitely always sign up for the wait list if you have not done that. Cabernet around the world has not been offered in a really long time. So if that's something you had your eye on, get on it today before those spots go away. Wines of the Rhone and we'll be rolling out more, especially after my trip to Tuscany, where I'll be taking a group of patrons. Check it out today. And don't forget about Patreon. The listeners who are members of Patreon, make this podcast possible. They get direct contact with me, with MCIs. They are our top priority. So patreon.com slash wine for normal people, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash wine for normal people. If we provide any value for you, we really, really appreciate it if you could return the favor. Patreon.com slash wine for normal people. Now let's get back to the show. The Grand and Premier crew and the terroir, that's actually not even the most difficult thing to know about Burgundy. Experts put more weight on producer and on vintage than they do actually on terroir. We already know the vineyard is good. Right. But there are producers that don't do as good a job huh. as others. So, yeah, there might be some Grand Cru on this list that you can afford, but will they be worth it? Maybe better to get a Premier Cru or even a Village wine from a better producer. So, if you break it down the variables, the terroir is producing fairly consistent results, and you're getting variability from the winemakers. Yeah, it's what you do with it hmm. in the end, what you do with it. That's part of the terroir too. Who's making the wine? Okay, so in the Cote de we have 14 communes, six make Grand Cru, some of the smallest appellations in France, over 100 Premier Cru in the Cote de hmm. 24 Grand Cru. We're going to go village by village, as we did with the Cote de Bone. We'll point out the Grand Cru as we go along. Okay. We are, as I said, not going to get through the whole Cote de in this episode. What I'm hoping for is to get through the biggest one. We're going to start out with the regional AOC, which is the Eau Cote de Nuit, which was consumed by Henry IV, incidentally, hmm. but didn't get its AOC until 1961. Red, white, rosé, but 94% of it is red. Oh, geez. So it covers 16 communes. It's divided... From the Eau Cote de Bonne, so they are sort of connected mm -hmm. at the village of Magny-les-Villers. Actually, this area was almost extinct. This is really a great point, MCIs, because what you brought up, okay, well, why don't we just expand the area? Right. Why don't we? Do yep. This was the area that was unexpanded. Ah, uh, okay. But as demand for Bourgogne increased, mm -hmm. the revival of the Eau Cote de Nuit came about. But they've already stretched it pretty much as far as it can go. It overlooks. They really can't manufacture any more supplies. There's no, well, there's, it's land, right? Yep. It just is what it is. So it overlooks the slopes of Gevry Saint Martin. It also goes all the way in the south to the woods of Corton. Corton is in Cote de Bonne. It's on the forest fringes. Again, you have forest, you can't get rid of that. 
it's higher up than a lot of the other. So I said, you know, 250 to 300 meters. Mm -hmm. This is 300 to 400 meters. So it's higher up. It's west of the coat. If you look on the map, you can see that it's the same Jurassic limestone, but the soils are thinner and there's more marl in the subsoil. There's also other things like scree and alluvial soils and pebbles and limestone Doesn't and things the like that. Doesn't thinner soil help it drain better? It's, it, at this point, it's not really about drainage. It's about being able to provide some nutrients that uh, are going to give okay. the, the okay. wine flavor. Yes, it all drains well, mm-hmm. but it, there's some other components there that are going to make it good or less good. Got it. The reds can be dark in color. They have strawberry and blackcurrant licorice violet. I think these are really great value for what they are, but they're still expensive. They're still like 40 US dollars. Yeah. The tannins definitely need time to chill out. If you buy a Eau Cote de Nuit, it's going to take a little bit more than an Eau Cote de Bone. It's going to take more time, frankly. I don't know if you remember this, but last year I bought the same producer, same vintage, Eau Cote de Nuit, Eau Cote de Bone. Eau Cote de Bone was so much better. It was just softer. The Eau Cote de Nuit was so harsh. Just because it wasn't ready yet, do you think? Yes, it wasn't ready. They were both Pinot. Really good acidity. They just need to chill out a little bit. The whites, again, they're so little white, but it's like flowers and honeysuckle and apple and lemon. It can age also because these wines are a little bit harsh. So this might be an interesting thing if you see one that's affordable to pick one up. So that's Okutsunui, the regional appellation. Don't poo-poo it. Aren't you supposed to describe it like a woman, though? Oh, my gosh. Do you want to talk about what I was reading to you? I can't, no, Holy the best way you have to read a sample. I can't. I'm not even... I can't. It's so offensive. Okay, so here's the deal. I was using the Wines of Burgundy book by Clive Coates, who's a master of wine. And I understand that he is an older gentleman from a different era. Because the way that he describes wine was very uncomfortable, frankly. Not only does, does it have no meaning, it's incredibly offensive. It's how somebody would describe a pinup girl, frankly, yeah, you know, from it's like, like the 1950s. If, if someone from the Rat Pack was describing a wine, it would be sort of in that vein. It was stuff like seductive... Of course, feminine and masculine, virile, sensual, sensual. Yeah, virile Virile, was a big one. Um, Does it have dignity? No, it doesn't. You remember that? That, Oh my gosh! Does it know its place? I mean, it really almost was like that. No, but I mean, it was so. It was one away from that. It was really like, does it have the class of this one? No, but you sure can have a good time with it. I mean, it was things like that. And it was really, yeah, descri- I mean, again, all the descriptors I, in the book made no, did nothing to facilitate my understanding of what the flavors were. It well, I just, just kept reading so it to ridiculous. you over and over again. And I was like, what about this one? What about this? All right. Maybe in the next you show, got, maybe in the next, okay, the next this one. will we'll, help right, we'll we'll the next show, we'll, the we'll next find, one. we'll find some of the more offensive ones. Okay. You definitely want to get to some of the villages here, but Cote de village is the village level. These are the peripheral villages in the coat. Sometimes good and sometimes it can be great value. Vicin and Brochon are in the north. And then you have some of the villages in the south. Comblachin and Corgolong are in the south. So the styles are going to vary. They don't generally blend in the north and the south, but you don't know which one is from closer to mm-hmm. Nuit Saint-Georges and which one is closer to Ficine. So it's a little bit confusing. Look where the producer is and just see if you can find out where they sourced from if you're going to buy a Cote de Nuit village. So now we're going to get into the villages where there's some Premier crew. I do want to say, interestingly, in the wines of Burgundy, they mention north of Marcinet, there actually used to be the Cote Dijonet. And I mean, this was like almost 20 years ago that it was a missed opportunity around Dijon, the city of Dijon. Jancis Robinson, on the other hand, mm-hmm. says that it's crap and that Gamay and Aligote and Pinot and Chardonnay is not good because it's flat around there. They need less fertile soil. So who knows if, whether or not that's the truth. But around the town of Dijon, the first village AOC, Appellation d'Origine Controlée, that we Encounter is the golden gate to the Cote de which is Marsanet. Marsanet is three communes. It's Marsanet, it's Chenov, and it's Cushy. Right outside of Dijon, it's actually kind of a suburb of Dijon, and there's some sprawl, unfortunately, bleeding into this area. The vineyards date back to the 7th century. 
1987, it was elevated to AOC village status from Bourgogne de Marsenay or Bourgogne de Marsenay la Côte. It has been famous, however, for rosé since really? the 1920s. But ironically, since it got its AOC village, mm-hmm. there's less rosé. So I guess they wanted to be taken more seriously, so they did more Pinot. I actually saw a Marsenay Blanc for $52 really? oh, today. Geez. Not even, just an AOC village level. So they do also do a little bit of Blanc. It's about 302 hectares or 746 acres. There are no Premier or Grand Cru, although there had been some discussion about two coming into play as Premier Cru, but that has not happened yet. The best sites are above what's called the Route de Grand Cru, which divides Marsonnet. So east of it, you have Rosé or basic Bourgogne, Rouge and Blanc. And west of it is where you have more of the slope. Now, most Marsonnet, you can find it for a decent price sometimes because it is machine harvested. It's flat enough so that they can do that. There's Jurassic limestone here. There's some silt and loess, windblown silt mm-hmm. in the lower lying parts. There's some thick clay, which makes it inappropriate actually for grapes. Stone and gravel, black soil. Some of it's good, some of it's not good. They're still going to sell it as Marcinet, though. So again, producer, 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 because there's variability. Elevation, 255 to 390 meters or 837 feet to 1,280 feet. So now we're talking about high elevation, right. viticulture, and the best sites this is really the tricky part. They have to be sheltered. The village goes back into this valley, and the valley has both clay soils and exposed vines to cold air. In the future, actually, this might be a really, really great place to grow grapes. But for now, if it's not sheltered, it's a little cold, and you're going to get less ripe pinot. Mm-hmm. The best places are sheltered and on some gravelly soils. So it's really confusing because you really do have to watch producer. Don't just buy it because it says Marcinet on it. You've got to make sure that you do your research. Pinot is 76% of plantings. It can be lighter in style. If it's from the south part of Marcinet, it's more powerful because it's a little warmer. If it's in the north, it's a little lighter. Red fruit, some black fruit. It's usually good for early drinking. It's not as complex. And then 17% is whites. It can actually be Chardonnay and Pinot Blanc. Most of the Blanc in the Cote de Nuit is actually made in Marcenet. They don't make a whole lot of white in the Cote de Nuit. Minerally, nice, good, young. It can also age a little bit. And then you have some nice peachy, fruity, elegant rosé, which, again, they used to be known for. I looked up the prices for Marcenet. For a basic Marcenet, we're talking about $40 U.S. dollars to start. And this is just a basic village wine. And I just want to say this used to be about $20, $25. And it goes up to about 170 U.S. dollars. Jeez. Yep. And then if you're ordering it at a restaurant. You can, what? yes, that's I mean, retail. That's, so that's absurd. only a 30% rate. The next town is Ficine. Ficine is a village appellation. It can also be Cotinui village if they want to use that. Between Dijon and Gevray Chambertin, which we're going to talk about. It includes two communes, which are funny. It's Fici and Ficine <laughs> together. <laughs> It's small. There's only 96 hectares or 238 acres and 43 acres or 17 hectares of that is Premier Cru. That's for red. For white. Sorry, I was looking at the map trying to find it here. It's it's spelled Fixin. It's spelled Fixin. It's spelled Fixin. I should have said that. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up, MCIs. It's called Fixin. There's 238 acres of red and 13 acres of white or five hectares of white. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. It has harder limestone with marlin, lighter limestone. It's stonier as you go up. It's steeper in the south. There's more clay in the south. So the wines are going to get bigger and richer in the south. Clay, heavier wines. It's east to southeast facing slopes, just like everything. 290 to 380 meters or 950 to 1150 feet. The north is going to be lighter in style. The mm-hmm. south can be, can be kind of tough with tannin because you have so much clay there. Hmm. It can be like Gervais Chambertin, which we will talk about in a second, but not quite as good. Okay. Still, it can be earthy. It can be peppery. It can be gamey. can be really harsh in youth. If you get a fecine, you've got to allow it a little bit of time. Unlike Marcenet, there are actually six Premier Cru in fecine. And they're all located in this clump in the south. And they're at the foot of the slopes. 
It's steeper. It's better drained. There's a little bit of marl and limestone. Not much white, but lots of red there. Okay. $35 at the basic level to about $250. Oh, sure. Yeah. Just sipping wine. This is not even Premier Cru. We're not even up to that yet. Gevray Chambertin. This is a village AOC. This is one of the first AOCs, 1936. The town used to be called Gevray. In 1846, this story should sound familiar from the Cote de Bone episode, they added the local vineyard of Les Chambertins to the town name, and then 11 other towns all over the Cote de Nuit and Cote de Bone decided to do this too. Remember Polini, Monrachet, Chassagne, Monrachet? Yeah, that's how we get that. This is where the top Burgundy begins. It is the largest commune of the Cote de Nuit. It is seen as the top place with Von Romanet for Burgundy. This is one of the kings of Burgundy. Wow. The boundaries have not changed in Gevray Chambertin since the Middle Ages. North to south between Bourchon and Moray Saint Denis, this is where the comb, that dry valley, opens up. Mm-hmm. And the village goes all the way to the main road, which is generally seen as the dividing line between good quality and not good quality. So if it's near a road, it's generally less good quality, just so you know. It goes up to 280 meters, which is around 900 feet. Gevray Chambertin is only red. 408 hectares, or 1,009 acres. 26 Premier Cru at around 918 to 1,250 feet or 280 to 380 mm-hmm. meters. Shallow brown limestone. The village wines, if we just talk about village and not Premier and Grand Cru, are about 369 hectares or 912 acres. There's a lot of wine here. You would think it would be affordable. Nope. <laughs> it's not. Because but anyway. it's that good? It's just in demands, again, really, really hard. The wines here you got in the north, just like we talked about with Ficine, are going to be heavier and less refined. As you move south, that is where you're getting the Grand Cru. They're lighter, they're more aromatic, they're more nuanced, and there is a portion across the highway, as I mentioned, which is not as good. If you've got stony soils, you have softer wines. If you have clay and marl, sometimes with fossils, you might have heavier wines. Generally speaking, for village wines, the preferred method is to blend from different parts of the commune, and then you'll get the best, the Goldilocks solution. East and southeast-facing slopes, I barely need to say that. It's really thought of as Burgundy's fullest-bodied Pinot because of the clay content. So you have strawberry and dark flowers and rose in youth, and with time you get licorice and underbrush and truffle and things like that. It can be tannic and acidic. It can be softer. It depends. Remember, we talked about all those winemaking things that you can do. It also depends on vintage. Did you include the stems? Did you not include the stems? Did you do long maceration? Did you not do long maceration? What kind of oak did you use? All of these things are going to matter. Plus, then you've got the terroir. Is it heavy clay so it's going to be a richer wine? Is it lighter? All these variables are going to matter because Pinot is highly affected by all of these factors. Sure. Are there some generalities that you could make, though, about its ability to be consumed on its own versus paired with food? Yeah, I mean... Look, here's the first thing I'm going to say about all this Burgundy. If you're having old Burgundy, generally speaking, you want to have it by itself because it is really? lighter. It's transparent. It's hmm. going to be taken over by food. So only with cheese or older Burgundy, I mean 10, 10 plus years, 10, 15 plus years. Hmm. It depends on what you get. So if you've got a really tannic younger wine, you definitely want to have food with it. If you've got a lighter style wine, which is high in acidity, you want foods that are high in acidity. But just make sure, because Pinot is so nuanced, Gevray Chambertin is a wine where you can afford to go a little heavier on the food, but not too heavy. It's still Pinot. No matter what any experts say about Burgundy, there is no Burgundy. I say this about Bordeaux, too, Mm -hmm. and I mean this more with Burgundy. There is no heavy-bodied or full-bodied Burgundy. It does not exist when we look at the world set of wines. We need to look at the entire experience of wines. Wine drinkers are no longer just French drinkers. If we were, then perhaps we would say, actually, even then, you know, how can you compare Burgundy to Chateauneuf? Mm -hmm. You can't in terms of heaviness and and body. 
So these wines are all at best medium bodied. At best, okay, maybe so even you know on the fuller side of medium. It, look, you can do that, but you've got to make sure that these wines have the tannin to go with it. But right. no Pinot has the amount of tannin that a Cabernet has. Mm-hmm. Usually, usually, hopefully not. Right, hopefully not. <laughs> the idea behind Pinot is to make a pretty perfumed wine, and so when we talk about bigger styles, we're talking about it relative to other Burgundies. Because it, when you have Burgundy, you never have a Burgundy. You go, wow, that's a big, right. big daddy of a wine, you know, as Clive. Oh, I'm sorry. Big mama of a big wine. Big mama. There you yeah. go. A voluptuous whatever, whatever sexualization they would do. But the point is, you're not going to say that. And so I try to be realistic about what Burgundy is because I don't want people spending all this money and then thinking they're going to get this huge wine, like a Paso Robles wine or a Australian Shiraz or anything like It's not like that. They mm-hmm. don't have the warmth to be able to do that. And Pinot is not that grape. So nine Grand Cru in Jarret Chambertin. Les Chambertin and Claude de Bez are the top vineyards. They are tiny. Claude de Bez actually appears in the history of Cotonou in the year 640 as a monastic property. And the name Chambertin has been used since the 13th century. Napoleon would drink nothing else besides Chambertin and Claude de Bez. Good taste. Right. And there has been recognition of seven Grand Cru that enjoin Chambertin and Claude de Bez. And the name Chambertin is attached to them because Chambertin is the top vineyard, along with Claude de Bez, which is Chambertin. Claude de Bez is actually the official name. So the Grand Cru, I'll just go through them very quickly. Chambertin is very, very small. There's very few producers. It is a sheltered area. It's at 275 to 300 meters. It is very rocky with poor soils limestone soils. It's a gentle slope. There's some oolitic limestone. There's some brown limestone. There's some pebbles and clay. This is where you're going to get the variation between different styles of Chambertin. For the most part, it is something that in its youth is going to be a little bit more abrupt, like coffee and black fruit and anise. Now, what I want to say is I have not had these wines, so I want to be clear that I'm going off of other people's words. And I will tell you why. Let me just give you some of the prices of Le Chambertin. I'm trying to imagine what a Pinot with those flavors would taste like. That it's just, a heaven. Yeah. It's just a beautiful, lighter style wine with these different flavors and earthiness that undergirds it, acidity. Mm-hmm. And so Armand Rousseau, 1600 to $7,000 for a bottle. These are bottle prices, by the way. Domaine Leroy, which is a small and very prestigious domain, $13,000 for a bottle. Jean and Jean-Louis Trappé, $1,000 for a great vintage, $600 in a regular vintage. So you can see why I haven't had these wines. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Rossignol Trappé has uh, one for $300. These are all from Wine Searcher, if anybody wants to check it out. So Claude de Bez is about the same size, 14 and a half hectares, a little bit bigger. It can actually be bottled as Chambertin, but Chambertin cannot be Claude de Bez. 40 parcels. It has fewer proprietors than Chambertin. But a lot of it is owned by one, Pierre Damoy, who owns about a third plus of the Appalachian. Oh, Those geez. prices are 250 to 750 US dollars. Others, Armand Rousseau, again, another coveted producer, $2,800 plus. Domaine Perot Minot, $1,000. So you get the point here. Yes. Actually, you can get Favelli, who is a big negociant. This is a good point of comparison, 280 to $470 for their wine. Wow. But likely, it's not going to be as nuanced as Rousseau, for instance. Okay, Claude de Bez is north of Chambertin, same elevation. We're talking about mostly the same elevations at 275 to 300 meters, shallower soils and a little bit steeper than Chambertin, and a bit more pebbly soil with less white limestone. Mm -hmm. It is seen as a little bit more complex, more acidic, and maybe a little more elegant than Chambertin. So those are the nuances between just a little tiny bit of soil difference. And then there's this big divide. After you get from Claude de Bez and Chambertin, the rest of the seven Grand Cru, they're kind of seen as second tier. Why? Because they are not those two. They have slightly different things. So we go to La Trissier Chambertin. Yeah. It's only about six seven hectares. And Latricier means actually poor and fertile soils. It's directly south of Chambertin. Similar soil, similar subsoil. It even has that oolitic marl. Basically no topsoil. 
difference. Wait, are you saying Clatter. It, it's literal, literal translation means poor, poor soils? Yes, poor soils, infertile. Oh. La tristier means poor soil, oh infertile. The difference here is that it's flatter. Mm-hmm. It's south. It's on, directly south of Chambertin, and it's flatter, and it almost has no slope. So here, it's going to be a little bit bigger in tannin. It will be earthy and gamey. It's just not considered the best cruise. So here, you can get a wine for 130 US dollars or 180 the better ones go up to about $500. So Domaine Trappé is about $500. Rossignol Trappé is $350, $200 to $350. Favali, again, a good, solid negociant, $170 to $280. Yeah, that's just couch change. Right, yeah. of course, right. Still super expensive, but I guess what I'm saying is compared to the $13,000 $13, for Chambertin, yeah. right. Then you have Massy's Chambertin, which is 8.65 hectares. And I'm only telling you the hectares because this is all just for, for point of comparison. It doesn't really matter whether it's acres or hectares. It's about 16, 17 hectares. It's all relative size right, is what right, you're right, trying right. to describe. Yep. Massy is under the next one that we're going to talk about, Richard Chambertin. It's between Clos de Bez and the village of Gevray. Similar soil to the Clos de Bez. The wine is very silky, can be a little bit fruitier and plusher and silkier then Chambertin or Clos de Bez. Here you have Dugas P, which is a very famed producer, $735 to $1,000 for Mazi Chambertin. Favali, $200 about. So that's, again, pocket change. Mm-hmm. Armand Rousseau, up to $1,500. And Leroy is $8,000 for Mazi Chambertin. All right, now you're talking. Right. Rouchat Chambertin is small and steep, Oolitic white limestone, little surface, more minerally than Mazi, but similar. Chapelle Chambertin. This is just south of the Clos de Bez. The name is from this chapel, Notre Dame de Bez, built in 1155. It's flatter. It's pebblier. It's got hard rock coming through. It's similar. It's fruity and earthy, but it's just not quite as complex or elegant. So again, another one that's really, really highly rated, $200 to $500 for Pierre Damoy. Ponceau is another great producer, up to $550. Jean and Jean-Louis Trappé, $500 plus. You have Griot Chambartin, which is the smallest between Chapelle and then the next one, which is Cham. This is under where Chambartin and Claude de Bez meet. These are all so close. Griot is actually a type of cherry. Clive Coates says that it's a name from Creole, like Creole Batard Monroche, which means chalk. Hmm. Who knows? Thin soils, though. Broken up rock, fossils. There's some underground springs, so it, it drains well, but it's a little bit harder because the water table's a bit higher. Okay. Softer tannin, gentler acidity, and these wines are $1,000. Fourier. Charme Chambartin is rather large, 27.54 hectares from Charme. And then actually the defined area for Charme Chambertin and Mazoyère Chambertin are the same, except most people use Charme. There are a few people using Mazoyère, but most people use Charme. So this is under Chambertin. It has a gentle slope. It's decayed limestone. The rock is a bit less decomposed in Charme. Elegant, more tannins, more refined than Mazoyère thousands of dollars for these wines. And Massier is stretches to the main road, which is unusual for a Grand Cru. Very few people use that appellation. Perot Minot, Dugapi, 500 to thousands of dollars. Amazing. Those are the Chambertin vineyards. Now, what I want you to pay attention to are not just the prices, which I know is sticker shock, but what I've said here, that we have Chambertin and Chambertin Clos de Buzz. These are the absolute pinnacle of Chambertin vineyards. And then we have others that are very, very well-esteemed. But there are ones that are less well-established and people are still paying a ridiculous sum of money because they're still delicious. Similar soils, but some are more broken up than others. Some are farther down the slope. Some are up higher. Some have oolitic white limestone. Some have brown limestone. Some are steeper than others. So this is where you're getting all of these nuances and differences. And that is what matters in Burgundy, especially in the Cote de Nuit. Do you don't think that some of these wineries are benefiting from, from the reputation well, for I, their pricing? I do think they are, and from the supply, hmm. because there is no wine. So when you look at the supply... And the demand, it really is a big deal that they are able to get these insane prices. The problem is, is worldwide demand going to stay the way that it is? 
And it's unclear. I think it's unclear because the Chinese have purchased an extraordinary amount of Burgundy, and they don't need to buy that much in order to make the whole market. Hmm. The U.S. market is incredibly important to Burgundy. The U.K. market is very important. The German market, the Belgian market, these are the traditional markets. Are the new owners doing anything to change the way that it's being made? No, these are traditional. These are legacy, right? Mm -hmm. You, You do introduce technology incrementally here, but these wines are and have been basically perfected. And there's not much to do except adapt to climate change. Hmm. And that's what they're doing. The problem for them is that what do you do when nobody young has ever tasted your wine (laughs) and you have a generation of wine (laughs) drinkers coming in who can't afford what you have and you're used to a certain lifestyle? I don't know what the answer to that is. Certainly Bordeaux has a way to overcome that because there's lots of affordable wines. But if well-established people are turning their back on paying these prices because they can, it's becoming a little bit clear that the population of the wine drinker is going to shrink. We're not going to have as many wine drinkers. It's just the way that it's going to be. I have said for a long time, I'm not heartbroken over this because I think that there's a lot of people who don't love wine who drink it. Is the fine wine drinking scene going to change? Maybe a little bit. I think it'll pretty much You think stay. it'll affect the lower tier wines it will, more significantly, absolutely. though? Yes, it absolutely will. And so what does that mean for normal people with normal incomes? That I'm maybe less likely to, to make a terrible error if there's fewer bad wines to choose hopefully from. Hopefully there'll okay. be fewer wine Got brands it. and fewer people sourcing from areas that aren't great and making wines that don't make the cut, right? These wines will stay around. It's just a question of who will be buying them and what will they do in the future because it is a huge hurdle to overcome that Burgundy is untouchable for most of us. And so I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe they don't care. And we're going to end here with the family of Chambertin because we've done the initial thing on Cote mm-hmm. de Nuit and we will get to the rest of the communes and some of the most famed wines. I know many people are thinking about Romani Conti and these famous wines. We will get through that in the next show where we can just dive right in. But the point that I want to make is, you know, these wines are incredibly special. Hopefully through these descriptions of what each of these wines are, what matters, what counts, this has sort of given you an idea of what the Cote de has and how interesting and unique it is and why the wines are priced the way that they are. Are they too much money? I think so. But someone's willing to pay them. Right. Somebody's willing to pay those prices. So if someone's willing to pay the price, I guess it's priced right. Okay, so we're going to end there. Stay tuned. And maybe we should do a different outro music for this. You know, we dun, need dun, cliffhanger, dun, yeah, we need like cliffhanger, cliffhanger music. music. Right. Hopefully you'll spend the week mulling over what we've talked about mm-hmm. with Chambertin as a good example. I'm actually kind of happy that we're just going to end there with those nine crew and the slight differences between them. And then... Next time we will pick up with Maurice Saint-Denis, which is actually one of the most underestimated places in Burgundy. And then we will move on to other places. So with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time.